The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Ezekiel, in the 36th chapter and the 25th verse, the 25th verse in the 36th chapter of the book of the prophet Ezekiel. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. We are considering these Sunday evenings this great message which is to be found here in this 36th chapter of the book of the prophet Ezekiel starting at verse 16 and going on to the end of the chapter. And we are doing so because uh, here we have a very perfect statement of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now I wonder whether anybody is surprised at a statement like that and is tempted to say, how can you say that you've got a statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament? The answer is, of course, that the Old Testament is full of the gospel. It foretells it, it foreshadows it. It is indeed the great prophetic message in the Old Testament, as it is in many senses the only message in the Old Testament. But in certain places it is put particularly clearly, and this happens to be one of them. It is put, uh, as you remember, in the form uh, of a message addressed uh, by God through the prophet Ezekiel to the children of Israel in the captivity of Babylon. Ezekiel is one of the uh, prophets of the captivity. He was with them. He sat down side by side with them by the waters of Babylon. And there they were, far from their own country. And uh, the prophet delivers this message to them. And we have seen that this message has got various steps and stages. The first thing that God tells these people is that they must realize why they are where they are. And that it's because of their sin, which is hateful to him and abhorrent in his sight. And which he has punished by allowing their enemies to attack them and to conquer them and to carry them away captive. He brings that home to them. But then having done that, he goes on to say that in spite of them, for his own namesake, he is going to deliver them. And he goes on to tell them how he's, how he's going to do so. Uh, we were considering it in general last Sunday night in the 24th verse where he says, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. And there we saw a general description of this wonderful gospel of salvation. Now, I've been repeating this point because it's so important. God's message to men is always the same. There is only one great message. And this is the message. 
You see, ever since men fell into sin, the world has been the same. Surely there is no need to establish that point. And yet one feels at times that there is, because we all tend to take such a superficial view. And because we ride in motor cars and in aeroplanes, and other people say 5,000 years ago used to walk or ride on beasts and animals, we think we are vastly different from them. But the fact is, we are exactly the same. We are guilty of the same sins. We have the same needs and troubles and problems. There there was jealousy as far back, you remember, as the very beginning of history between two brothers called Cain and Abel. And Cain murdered his brother. And the world is still doing that sort of thing. And men and women are still full of the same things, jealousy and envy and malice and bitterness and spite and hatred. They still covet. They still are governed by their lusts and passions. Men is still and always the same. So the word of God to him is still and always the same. And what the world needs this evening is this old message that was addressed by the prophet Ezekiel to the children of Israel. Now, I put it like this last Sunday night, that we, all of us, the human race in its entirety, is like the children of Israel away from home. It's somewhere where it shouldn't be. And what is needed above everything else is is deliverance. For whether we like it or not, sin is a bondage, it's a captivity, it's a serfdom. And all of us born into this world are born the slaves of sin. And we can't liberate ourselves. We are held in the captivity by the devil and his powers. And we are absolutely helpless. And we can't get back to where we were meant to be. But God has provided the way. That is the message of salvation. And he says, I will bring you back unto your own land. And that means that we come back to the place where God again looks upon us and blesses us. Where God once more showers upon us his gifts. And we are in that right relationship for which we were originally created. Now then, that is the statement as far as we have gone. But now we continue. And here we begin to come to the details. We get here what we get so frequently in the scriptures. First of all, the complete statement is made. Then it's taken up again and we are given its component parts. And in this verse, this 25th verse, that we're looking at together tonight, we come to the first detail. What is the first thing that is essential to the salvation of men? What is the first thing that is absolutely vital to all of us before we can know God and his wondrous blessings? Well, here it is. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Now, this, I say, is the first. It isn't the last thing, but it is the first thing. There are other things to follow. And you notice how wonderful they are. A new heart also will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. 
And listen to this on Whit Sunday evening. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. There's a prophecy, you see, of what happened at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Ghost was shed and poured forth upon the church. You've got it in the second chapter of Joel. You've got it here. It's in many other places. I will send showers upon the thirsty land, says Isaiah. It's always the same. Well, now, here you see, in other words, we really have got a complete and full statement of the Christian gospel, the Christian message. But the thing I want to emphasize tonight is this. The first question, the first problem we must of necessity face is our sin, is the guilt of our sin. Now I'm going to bring you back from that land of Babylon to your own land of Canaan, said God through Ezekiel to these people. Yes, but he makes it very plain and clear that before they can be brought back, they've got to be cleansed. They've got to be washed. They are filthy. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Well, there it is and it's still the same. The Bible always starts with this. But of course it's something we none of us like. We all are conscious of the need of help. We are conscious of many needs. Life has got us down and we're in trouble and in perplexity. Very simple thing to prove that. All the tensions and the stresses of the modern world are bearing eloquent testimony to that. The way people are ready to clutch at anything and are living on drugs of various sorts and of kinds is just proof of what I'm saying. There are problems, there are difficulties, and uh, everyone is conscious of the need of help, the need of assistance, the need of guidance. What am I to do? Where am I to go? We are conscious of our own smallness and inability, and we feel we need all this. And if we are told, well, uh, God is ready to give you guidance, he's ready to help you, and so on, uh, we're interested in it, and we're ready to listen to it. But here again I say we've got to remember this, that there is an absolute essential preliminary and that we shall experience no blessings whatsoever from God until we have first faced this problem, the guilt, the pollution, the filthiness of our sin. And therefore, anything that offers itself as the gospel, which gives you, offers to give you help or assistance or guidance or anything else, which doesn't, first of all, hold you face to face with your guilt and the need to be washed, is not the Christian message. Now, I'm putting it very dogmatically. Because I know there are theories and teachings held before people today who tell them that they can come to God and be blessed by God and who never mention the need of this washing and this cleansing. And I say that is not the Christian gospel. That is not the Christian message. This is always in the first position. 
In other words, let me put it like this. That a right relationship to God is impossible until the question of our sinfulness has been dealt with and has been solved. Now, this is something, I say, which is emphasized everywhere in the scriptures. And surely, if we have any right understanding of the being and the nature and the character of God, we shan't be surprised at this. The scriptures tell us that God is light and that in him is no darkness at all. That God is a consuming fire. That God is holy. He dwelleth in a light which is unapproachable. How is it possible for men covered by the guilt and the vileness and the filthiness of sin to have communion and fellowship with such a being? Surely on the very surface, it's quite impossible. God's character, I say, alone in his righteousness and his holiness makes it a sure and an utter impossibility. But God has made it very plain in an explicit manner. Now, you've got it in your Old Testament. The Apostle Paul sums it up by putting it in these words. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. It's been revealed. God himself has revealed it. When God gave his Ten Commandments, what was he doing? Well, he was just giving a revelation of this. Here were these children of Israel whom he'd formed for himself. He tells them that having delivered them out of the bondage of Egypt, he's going to lead them into the land of Canaan, and they're going to be his people, and he's going to bless them. Yet, he says, you must remember the condition. You must live and behave as my people. I am a holy God, therefore you must be a holy people. Be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. So he gives them the Ten Commandments. And there he not only tells them how they ought to live, he warns them of the punishment that will be meted out upon their sin. Now the wrath of God is a fact. He has manifested it. He's revealed it. And, of course, nowhere has he revealed it more clearly than in the case of the children of Israel themselves. This very paragraph with which we are dealing brings it out very clearly. It was God himself who allowed these people to be conquered and to be carried away to Babylon. He had told them that he was going to do that. And you remember that in these words we, we read it like this. I scattered them among the heathen, and they were dispersed through the countries according to their way and according to their doings. I judged them. Now, God has there revealed, I say, his attitude towards sin. That he hates it, he judges it, and he must punish it. Therefore, I say, it is an obvious deduction. That the first question that must of necessity arise before we can be back into communion and fellowship with God is this question of our sinfulness. And so, you see, as you read your Old Testament, this is what you find. You find men approaching God and they take a sacrifice with them. You remember Abel took a sacrifice. Even at the very beginning it was clear that no man could approach God without some sort of offering or of sacrifice. 
You come along and you read the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and you get all this about burnt offerings and sacrifices, animals being slain, the blood being sprinkled, the high priest going into the presence of God presenting blood. What's it all mean? Well, it just means this. Sin has got to be dealt with. There is no relationship between man and God while man is covered in his sin. God receiveth not sinners. He cannot receive them as they are because he is God. Now, the whole teaching of the Bible emphasizes that. And therefore we must recognize it as something which is absolutely cardinal and vital to our whole position. So that you see, my friends, the first thing that you and I have to do if we want to know God and to be blessed of God, the first thing we have to do is to realize that somehow or another this question of our sinfulness, our guilt in God's presence, must be dealt with. Now, you see, we've got a perfect illustration of all this, haven't we, in the New Testament, in the parable of the prodigal son, spoken by our Lord himself. That man came to himself, and when he went back to his father, he didn't just go back and say, Father, I've come back. Bring out the fatted calf. Give me my robe. Produce the ring. I see now that I can do with these things, and I want to have them. Not at all. He came back and he said this, Father... I have sinned against heaven and before thy face and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. He's a man who realizes his guilt. He feels that his conduct and, and his behavior has cut him off from his father. He's forfeited every right as a son, he doesn't appeal to his father as father in a sense. He says, I'm only worthy to be a son. Take me in as one of your uh, as a servant. Take me in as one of your servants. Now that's of the very essence of the right approach. And that's why our Lord so put it. And again, you've got it, you see, in the parable of the publican and the Pharisee who went up into the temple to pray. The Pharisee walks right to the front and he says, I thank thee, O God, that I am not as other men are. He felt a need of God. He wanted to be right with God. But there's no problem of sin for him. He just boasts of what he's done. And then I suppose he wants God to grant him certain blessings because he's so good. But there's the other man beating his breast. And unable even to look up and says, God be merciful to me a sinner. His guilt, his sinfulness, his vileness, his filthiness. He feels he hasn't a right, he hasn't a claim. I say unto you, says our Lord, that that's the man who went down to his house blessed and justified. Why? Well, because the man has realized the problem of sin. He realizes his filthiness, his vileness. Oh, my friends, we can never emphasize this too much. You read the lives of all the men and women who've lived in this world and who've known God and who've been blessed by him and who have testified to his power and to his love and compassion. These people who, though they were oft times surrounded by problems and difficulties and trials, 
were unable to rise above them all, and the memory of whose lives is a veritable benediction for us all, and you can never read about them or think of them without feeling, well, that's life as it ought to be lived. You'll never find such a person. But that they always and invariably acknowledge and confess their sin, their own unworthiness, their own unrighteousness, the filthiness of their lives as they were by nature and unaided. It's the first thing. We must be cleansed. And, I, and God puts it first here. I will cleanse you. I will wash you. But that, of course, leads us to the next point, which is this. How can this be done? What can we do about our sins? We've all sinned. We've all sinned deliberately against God. We've ignored him. We've forgotten him. We've deliberately flouted his laws. We've disobeyed our conscience. We have deliberately sinned against God. And there is the record. The sin is upon us. This filthiness, as it's called here, this guiltiness, this stain of sin, this vileness of sin. What can we do about this? How can you remove it? How can you erase it? How can you make the page in the book of your life white again? How can you get rid of the blots? Have you ever tried to do it? Have you ever tried to wash yourself spiritually and to make yourself fit to stand in the presence of God? Oh, I needn't keep you. Let me give you a quotation out of the 51st Psalm, which rarely says it all. David writes the 51st Psalm. He was guilty of terrible sin. He was guilty not only of adultery, but of murder on top of it. And he's awakened to it. He suddenly comes to see it. And he wants to get right with God and wants to get back. And this is how he puts it. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He can't do it. Burnt offerings, he says, and sacrifices are not enough. He tried to cleanse his heart, to cleanse himself, but he knows he can't do it. And his only cause, he tells us, is, is to go back to God himself. Ah, this is the testimony of all who've ever known God's blessing. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no respite know? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. You see, here it is. This is the initial problem. Before I begin to think of my future... And any man who once is awakened to his position in life and face to face with God, he becomes alarmed and concerned. He wants to be right in the future. But before you come to the future, what about this past? 
Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. And we can say, what I have done, I have done. And the stain of sin is upon us. And all this unworthiness and filthiness and vileness. And we cannot touch it. We cannot remove it. And yet we can have no relationship with God while it's there. God cannot even look upon sin. Now this, you see, is the very essence of the Christian message. It's all here in this verse we're looking at. The answer to the problem is this. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Will I cleanse you? This is, if you like, the paradox of the gospel. It is all there, of course, in that 51st Psalm. Has it ever occurred to you to look at it like this? Here is a man like David who says against thee, the only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And yet he knows that the only one who can deliver him and put him right is the very God whom he has offended. And that is the heart of the gospel. Men can do nothing. You can't erase these spots. You can't get rid of this thing which you've done. Sin is upon us. And we can't get rid of it. Well, what can we do? Well, the astounding thing is that as we're in our predicament and see and feel our hopelessness, it is God himself who speaks to us. And he announces to us that he himself is going to wash us. The very God against whom we've sinned and whom we've offended is himself going to cleanse us and to purify us and to render us capable and fit of standing in his holy presence. And that leads us to the next step. How does he do it? How does he do it? I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. Now, that's, of course, the Old Testament method. That was the way in which they did it. They used to take a heifer and burn the heifer, and then they took the ashes of the heifer and put it in water and mixed it, and people who had sinned or who touched a dead body and had done various other things were sprinkled with this water, and thereby they were cleansed. That's the pictorial language that's used, but it's all a foreshadowing of something. And of what? The glorious message of the New Testament. How does God wash us from the guilt of our sin? Why, this is the very heart and nerve of the New Testament gospel of salvation. It's the thing that we are reminded of by the bread and the wine. It is the great function of the Holy Spirit who was sent into the church on the day of Pentecost to make these things plain and clear. He doesn't speak about himself. He speaks about Jesus Christ and he glorifies him. How can I get rid of this sin? How can I get rid of this stain? How can I get rid of this vileness, this pollution? And here comes the answer in this wonderful message. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Did you notice how it was put there in that great tenth chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews which we read together at the beginning? No, no, says that man, the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer uh, cannot really do this thing that's a temporary expedient uh, just to cover it for the time being. Well, how is it done? Well, this is how he puts it. There is someone who comes into the world and says, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. A body thou hast prepared me. And that's just a way of telling us that in order to deal with this terrible, tragic, appalling problem of our guilt and our vileness and filthiness, God has sent his only Son into this world. The Lord Jesus Christ came into the world specifically for this problem of our guilt. He didn't merely come to teach us, he did teach he didn't merely come to give us an example, he does that. But if he'd stopped at that, then I say he would have condemned us more than we were already condemned. I cannot come up to my own standard, I cannot satisfy myself. I read the lives of saints and I feel I'm a pygmy and I'm nothing. And then I look at Jesus of Nazareth. And he just makes me feel utterly and absolutely hopeless. I read his sermon on the mount. And I say, who can, who can live such a life? Who can ascend to such a height? The thing is so exalted. It's all very well to sit back and say, what a wonderful life. Now I'm going to follow him. I'm going to go after him and imitate him. I'm going to live like that. Have you ever tried it, my friend? You try it and you'll find it's utterly impossible. He just reveals your weakness. He exposes your sin more than ever. But no, he didn't come primarily to do those things. The real object of his coming into the world was this, again put in this epistle to the Hebrews. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He came to taste death for every man. In other words, let's put it quite simply and plainly. The problem of the guilt of your sin and mine was so great that the Son of God had to come from heaven. Had you realized that, my friend? Or had you, you rather thought this, which so many seem to think still, in spite of this open Bible, that God forgives sin because he's love? That all you and I have to do is to say that we are sorry. And because God is a God of love, he'll forgive us our sins. Well, then I ask you, why did the Son of God ever come into this world? Because it was known in the Old Testament that God is a God of love, that he's full of mercy and compassion. A psalmist can say, when my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. They write about his long-suffering, his patience, his compassion, his goodness and his kindness and his mercy. All that was known. Why, I asked, did the Son of God leave the courts of heaven and come on earth and live and die and rise again? There's only one answer. It was absolutely essential. The guilt of your sin and mine could not be dealt with except in that way. 
So he came on earth in order to deal with this very problem, this sin that is upon us. And as I say, he didn't help us to solve that merely by living as he lived or teaching as he taught. That leaves us still more sinful. Well, how then? Well, let me summarize it in this form. There is the law of God thundering out its condemnation of sin, demanding that men should live a righteous and a holy life in the presence of God. And Jesus Christ came in this body which God had prepared for him, He entered into the virgin's womb. He took human nature from her, added it unto himself, and he lived here as a man. And he rendered a perfect obedience to that law of God. He satisfied its every demand. But even that isn't enough. That's enough, I say, to enable us To say that we've kept the law in him, but still there is the problem of the sins committed, the sins of the past. What can be done about them? And here we come to the most wonderful and amazing thing of all. He deliberately identified himself with our guilt and our sins. He went to John the Baptist and he said, baptize me. And John said, you don't need to be baptized. I need to be baptized of you. Why do you ask me to baptize you? He said, suffer it to be so now. For thus thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. He identifies himself with us in sin. He makes himself one of us. He takes his stand by our side. But follow on the story. And go and look at him in the garden of Gethsemane. There he is sweating great drops of blood as he says to his father, if it be possible, let this cup pass by. What's he talking about? Oh, he's talking about your sins and mine. That's the cup. He has come on earth to deliver us from the guilt of our sins. How can it be done? There's only one way. He has got to take them upon him. He's going to clothe himself, as it were, with our sins. And God is going to punish your sins and mine in the person of his own son. If it be possible, he says three times, let this cup pass by. Nevertheless, not thy will, not my will, but thine be done. He has come to save us. And yet he asks at the last moment, as it were, is this the only way? Does it really mean that when you look upon me on that cross, you're going to see not so much me as the sins of humanity, and you're going to hate them, and you're going to smite them, and thus we'll be separated? Is it the only way? But it was the only way. And on he went. And there on Calvary, God hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or as Peter puts it, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. 
The sins of men were put on him, and God punished them. He smote him by his stripes. We are healed. His blood was shed. And it is the shedding of his blood that alone can cleanse us from the guilt and the filthiness and the foulness of our sins. I will sprinkle you, says God, with clean water. It's his action. Man cannot get rid of his sins. He can't make atonement. He can't undo the past. He can't offer anything to God that is satisfactory. There is nothing that is adequate. Man cannot. But God can. And God has. And the cleansing is in the blood of Christ. Which cleanses from all sin and every stain and defilement and pollution. And so God makes us clean and fit to come into his presence. And gets rid of the guilt of all our sinfulness and vileness. By shedding the blood of his own son. And sprinkling it upon us. Now you see Ezekiel has been given the sight of all this. He'd seen it all. God spoke it to him. And he told, it, told, he told him to tell it to the children of Israel. And we have it in all its fullness. No longer in types and shadows. But the thing has happened. It's been done. That's why we're going to drink bread and wine. We're declaring the Lord's death till he comes. Why do we do that? Because it's the only way whereby we can be forgiven. He said it himself, didn't he? The Son of Man, he said, is not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The good shepherd layeth down his life for the sheep. It's the only way. But I'm anxious to emphasize this before I close. That this way is sufficient. You notice how it's emphasized in our text here back in Ezekiel. Listen to it again. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. You notice the emphasis? From all your filthiness and from all your idols, will I cleanse you? And if you forget everything else I've said, try to hold on to this and to remember this. This is a fact. Did you notice how here in this tenth of Hebrews once more, that quotation is given about the new covenant? He's quoting Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant that I will make with them in those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and listen. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. And this is the thing that you and I have to realize and to believe. Having laid them upon Christ and having punished 
the sins there and having dealt with them, God has finished with them. Their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. He has cast them into the sea of his forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. They've gone in Christ. Oh, this is so vital that I must give you some further quotations. Listen to John in his first epistle putting it like this. An old man by now, the apostle John, knew that his death was at hand, and he writes to these Christians, he wants them to be happy, he wants them to know the joy which he knew as an apostle. He wants them to have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. How is it to be done? Well, he says, this is the position You can have fellowship like that with God while you're in this world. You don't have to wait until you're dead and gone to heaven to have fellowship with God. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And I want you to have it and to share in it, says John. Very well, how is it to happen? And then he says the most amazing thing. This is the message. That God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. How can I have fellowship with such a being? What's the use of saying I want you to enjoy the fellowship and to have the happiness? And then you spoil it all by saying God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Because I know that the truth about myself is this. Oh, how can I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim, before the ineffable appear and on my naked spirit bear that uncreated beam? If God is light and in him is no darkness at all, how can I, who am full of darkness and vileness and ugliness, how can I possibly walk with him? Listen. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Yes, as you walk with God through this world, you'll fall into sin, and you become spotted again, and there's the blemish on you and the pollution. Well, then you say, how can the fellowship continue? The answer is, the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Or listen to the Apostle Paul putting it in writing to the Corinthians. It's a tremendous statement, my friends. Oh, that we might have the power of the Spirit to grasp it this evening. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 6. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. People like that shall not have fellowship with God. They'll never know his blessing. They'll never be in his kingdom. Listen. And such were some of you. 
They'd been guilty of those things. Foul, vile, filthy, in the very dregs and gutters, guilty of these horrible, revolting things. Such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. They were polluted, vile, filthy, but God has said, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean, I will wash you. And he washed those Corinthians and made them clean. And they were saints in the church of God and were having fellowship with God. Oh, it's in the blood of Christ we are washed. It is only there we can wash our sins away and make our garments clean and bright. Oh, says Paul, it is in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. God's way of forgiveness and cleansing from the guilt of sin is in the blood of Christ. That's the pure water. And therefore, you see, it leads to this. And this is why I read that chapter at the beginning. Having, therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest. That's the question. How can I enter into the holiest? How can I have an audience with God? How can I speak to God? How can I pray to God? How can I be blessed of God? That's what I want to know. How can I get at him? There's only one answer. Having, therefore, brethren, boldness, confidence. To enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil accusing conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I'd like to end by putting that to you in the form of a question. When you pray to God, do you do it like that? Do you enter into the presence of God with boldness? Do you do so in the full assurance of faith? Do you go to him knowing that your sins are forgiven and that you are his child and that he is delighted to receive you? That's full assurance of faith. How can I do that, says someone? Because when I go on my knees before God, I'm more conscious of my sins and of my sinfulness than at any other time in my life. And I know that I'm a sinner. How can I go with confidence and boldness when I know I've sinned? Ah, that's the whole question. If you believe this message concerning Jesus Christ and him crucified, you can go in the full assurance of faith. Because you say to yourself, though I am a sinner, though I am guilty of sins, Christ, 
has borne them, has borne their punishment and their guilt. He's taken them away, and God will remember them no more. I believe this, so by the blood of Christ, I'll go in as I am, trusting to his perfect work and his merit, knowing that God will honor his word and will receive me. That's the full assurance of faith. It isn't ignoring your sins, it's facing them, it's confessing them, it's admitting them, but saying, yes, but Christ has died for them. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stain. It's the only thing that's strong enough and potent enough to take out the stain of sin. But it is enough. And it doesn't matter what you've been. I can't give you a list that is worse than that which Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 6. It includes everybody in this congregation, doesn't it? Have you been a murderer? It doesn't matter. That can be blotted out. That stain can be taken out by the blood of Christ if you but believe he died for you. So don't talk about your sins. Don't talk about your fitness any longer or any more. All the fitness you require is to feel your need of him. His blood cleanseth from all sin and unrighteousness. You believe that. And then go in the full assurance and confidence of faith, pleading only the blood of Christ shed for you and for your sins. And God will receive you and will let you know that your sins and iniquities he will remember no more. I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. When God washes you in the blood of Christ, there is no more remembrance of sin. It's gone. Your sins are forgiven in him, and you go to God to thank him and to give yourself to him. And to pledge yourself to live only to his praise, his glory, his honor, who has so loved you that at such a price and at such a cost, he has ransomed and rescued and redeemed and cleansed you and brought you back into himself and is now beginning to shower his blessings upon you. The first question is the guilt of your past sins. And until they are removed, you're out of relationship with God. But in Christ and Him crucified, you can be reconciled, restored, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like me, His praise should stay. Amen.